It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 3814567 or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. Ooh, good evening and welcome. Dan, watch my levels there. Sounds like we're a little hot. Uh, good evening. Welcome to the Virtual Bible Study. This is Thursday night, September the 19th, 2013. Thanks for joining us on the Virtual Bible Study tonight. As always, we look forward to your participation. Uh, we have several ways you can communicate with us as we study together tonight. You can send us an email to questions at collegeview.com. You can call us, 877-381-4567, a toll-free number. You can call us, and we'll talk to you on, on air. Or you can get into the chat room, which you see there on our homepage, and uh, give yourself a, a pseudonym or a real name so we can identify who's talking back and forth in the chat room. We'll be glad for you to participate there. That's how most people give their feedback during the course of the uh, of the study on each Thursday night. But we're glad that you're with us. Uh, my name is Greg Gwynn. Uh, I'm one of the regular hosts here on the Virtual Bible Study. My son Jacob is off tonight, and so filling in as a substitute for us, my good friend Jim Michaels. Jim, welcome to the Virtual Bible Study. Uh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Looking uh, forward to our studies together for a little bit tonight. All right. Jim and I go way back, but Jim has just recently moved to begin preaching in Lewisburg, Tennessee, not too far from us here in Columbia, and we're glad to have him closer to our area where we can maybe impose on you once in a while, Jimmy, to help us out with the virtual Bible study. Dan's running the board tonight. Dan, uh, uh, thanks for being here and uh, helping out. And uh, as usual, when Jacob is missing, we feel a little bit technically uh, uh, stressed upon. And so hopefully everything is working fine and we'll get out, uh, get our message out. Earlier today, I sent out a, a message to our update list, which I do every Thursday, telling you about our topic for discussion tonight and giving you some questions that we want to talk about. Tonight's discussion is, in general, about church finances. You know, Jimmy, I think that's a topic in general that most people, most religious people, never think about, how how the church is to both get its money and how it's supposed to use its money. I, I seriously doubt if the average church-going person ever spends much time thinking about that. Well, I think it's true, especially as you look and see all the things that they're involved in. And uh, as far as raising funds, and then if you see all the things that they're spending funds for, uh, that's uh, very apparent that that's the case. And it's not just, uh, I think, our denominational friends in the religious world, but it's those who are members of the church as well. And I think it's facing uh, even those among us that we would consider those that would be more conservative in their, their thinking. You know, I hear things all the time that are very uh, uh, church is sometimes involved in some things that are very questionable, I think, that uh, and doing some things I don't think they have Bible authority for. So. I think you're right. And also, uh, we even, but we also hear on the other end of the spectrum some people challenging what we think are authorized activities of the church. And we want to talk about some of that on the virtual Bible study tonight. I sent out these questions to our update list earlier today, and uh, 
And you may notice that in every question, the word authority is contained because we're very much interested in the Bible authority for this subject of church finances. Question one I asked was, what are the works that the local church is authorized to do? Number two, what are the authorized means by which a local church may obtain money to finance its work? And then as a part of that question, is there authority in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2 for collections for things other than benevolence? We'll kind of explain that when we get to that question. As, as a continuing follow-up, is a local congregation authorized to maintain a treasury? We want to talk about that because some people question whether or not it's right for a church to have a, a treasury or a fund, a, a, a continuing fund of money. We'll talk about that. Question three, is there authority for one local church to send money to another local congregation? If so, specify. Question four, what is the authorized pattern for a local church to support evangelism in a foreign field? And number five, is a local church authorized to surrender any part of its finances to the oversight of another church, a denominational board, or so forth? So those are the questions we want to get to as we dive into our study tonight. Again, you can send us an email at questions at collegeview.com. You can call us, 877-381-4567, or get in the chat room and let us uh, know what you're thinking as we begin this discussion. I think the obvious starting place here has got to be, what are the things that a local congregation is authorized to do? What's a local church supposed to be doing? What is the the work that we're authorized to do? Jim, start us out. Well, I think the first thing that we obviously, and is very apparent, I, I think, as you study the scriptures, is the, the work in evangelism. And uh, I think that's the main work that the church is to involve itself in. And uh, I think the Bible uh, tells us that. You know, in First Timothy 3, in verses 15, it's there that uh, Paul, writing to the young evangelist, uh, Timothy, he tells him that the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. And he said, if I... I'm delayed. He said, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. My understanding of that verse is, is that the responsibility that the church has is to obviously to spread the truth, but also to defend the truth as well. You think what a pillar does, <clears throat> uphold and support? Absolutely. And um, I think that's the primary work of the church, and we can see that in uh, uh, other other passages as well. Remember when the Apostle Paul was uh, persecuting the church in Acts, the 8th chapter, before he was converted, he was called Saul there. Of course, verses 1 talks about now Saul was consenting to his death, and at that time a great persecution arose against the church, which was, was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And you drop down to verses 4. And he said, therefore, those who were scattered abroad whenever we're preaching the word. And so... That's what they were involved in. And uh, as the result of perse- uh, the persecution that arose, they were fulfilling the responsibility that God gave them to spread the truth and uh, to preach that truth so that souls could be saved. The church at Thessalonica, Paul commended them for doing that very work. In First Thessalonians 1, verse 8, he said, For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God word is spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything. And so there's there's an example, a specific example of a local congregation, the church at Thessalonica, and they were busy spreading the word. I'm like you, Jimmy. I think that that's the the important – I think everything God tells us to do is important. And, it, and you, you have to, you know, there's – you have to be a little bit careful about saying one thing's more important than sure. another. We understand that. Yep. But I believe that this is the principal job that the Lord – 
gave the church to do. Uh, and when you think about it, you have to agree that there's nothing more important. There's nothing the world needs more than that to hear the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, the only thing that we have that is of any value at all is our souls. And, uh, you know, that's the thing that we can do uh, for other people that they need uh, more than anything else is teach them the truth so that they can be saved. Another passage along this line is Acts, the 13th chapter. Remember, it says, Now in the church uh, that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who had been brought up uh, with Herod the Tetrarchs, and Saul. It says, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So... There's the work that uh, God gave the church to do and to spread. And here, uh, through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit speaks and tells them to separate these men. Now, these were men that made up that church at Antioch here. And so if you study through the book of Acts, you'll always see, too, that Paul, as he goes on those various missionary journeys, first with Saul, uh, with Barnabas, and then later, you remember the division, and, of course, he took Silas with him, that they always make their way back to Antioch of Syria, this this kind of becomes their home base, so and, to speak. And that church, was, that church was yeah. principally involved in yep. sending them out. That's right. You know, I, I really think that probably everybody agrees. I don't. We probably don't have to uh, to prove too much that the church should be evangelizing the, the lost world. I think everybody agrees. But you know, we can't just take that for granted. We've got to do what, what we've just suggested. We've got to go to the scripture and prove that God did give the church that job. That that first century churches under the leadership of inspired apostles were engaged in that work of evangelism? I think clearly it is. A second work that the church has been given to do, we sometimes uh, describe as edification. Now, edification, that's a word we don't use typically, but the word just literally means to build up. And the idea of edification is, so we're out here converting lost sinners to Christ, but when they when they become Christians, they're just babes. They need grounding. They need to be strengthened. They need to be built up. That is the work of edification. And God certainly assigned to the church the job of strengthening and building up Christians. Um, for instance, uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, there's a passage that describes the various offices that were in that first century church. Uh, Ephesians 4 verse 11, he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Notice, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Uh, if you skip down to verse 16, it talks about the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. So certainly the Lord gave the church the job of strengthening those of us who are already Christians, Jimmy. Well, and two, also in verse 14, uh, he said that we should no longer be children. And he doesn't want them to remain, as you said, babes in Christ. And he wants them to grow up and to mature. And he gave these individuals that responsibility of teaching and instructing. You know, that's one of the things, too. We, you know, sometimes you use the, we look at the word evangelist and a, uh, sometimes our religious friend, they think of an evangelist as a person that just travels from place to place and is never in, in any particular uh, area very long. But that's not what the word evangelist meant in, in, the, in the New Testament. It was simply someone that would be uh, a proclaimer of the truth. And 
Paul uh, telling the young evangelist Timothy about his duty and his responsibilities in Second Timothy uh, chapter 4, beginning in verses 1. He said, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Now, notice what he says. He says, preach the word. Well, now, why? Well, uh, they needed the word taught to them, not just to be taught what to do to be saved, but to grow and develop and to become the kind of person that they need to be. He said, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and, and teaching. As you well know, some have said, you know, preach it when they like it and preach it when they don't. But but you have to preach it in, in love. We, we understand that. He said, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. He said, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. And so they need to be taught and instructed so that they can grow and develop and so that they can make a distinction between truth and error and so that they'll not be wanting their ears tickled, but they, they want the truth taught to them. That's part of uh, of a preacher's responsibility. And, and even as we, we think about it, and you can make comments about this if, if you like as well, you know, one of the responsibilities that we can see of an elder, we see that elders make up the church, part of the responsibility and duty that they have is to make sure that the church is fed and make sure that they shepherd that church. You remember Paul says that to the elders at Ephesus in Acts, the 20th chapter, and verses 28. Yeah, and I was thinking there in Acts 20, Jimmy, that in verse 31, Paul says, Watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul had spent three years. He was an evangelist for sure, but he wasn't just moving. He he went around. He moved a lot. But that's not to say he didn't spend some protracted time at different locations and here we know for sure that he was in ephesus for three years real quickly we're almost up to our first break and i want to cover this one last part of the work of the church we'll just talk about it briefly we're going to get into it more here in a minute we already talked about evangelism and edification i think the third and final broad area of responsibility these are broad descriptions uh certainly there's a lot involved in evangelism there's a lot involved in edification a third broad area of responsibility in fact, this is a more actually a more restricted area of responsibility that God has given to the church is the work of benevolence. Now, again, that's a word we don't use all the time. Uh, it just means providing for physical necessities. The, and and the Lord did give the church the responsibility of providing for the physical necessities of certain individuals. It's in it's important to know. Uh, we won't take time to read all the passages. We can get into them later if there's any question about it. But I've got listed 12 passages of scriptures where we find local churches as a collective body. Now, that's the key. As a collective body, we, there's there's 12 passages where the church was doing benevolent work, assisting with physical needs. In every instance, the assistance that the church gave was to needy saints, needy Christians, uh, so certainly that was a job that the church was to do. We see them doing it. But it was a limited work in the sense that it wasn't just a general benevolent activity. It wasn't for all the world's needy. It was restricted to needy saints. Now, real quickly, I'm going to give the qualifier. We understand that as individual Christians, we are not thus limited. Passages like Galatians 6, verse 10, which are addressed to individuals, says, let us do good unto all men as we have opportunity, especially those of the household of faith. 
So as an individual Christian, I ought to be benevolently minded to any needy person that I'm able to help. But the church is limited in benevolence in the sense that it is only authorized to relieve needy saints. Uh, again, Jimmy, I think I, I think there's some common sense to that. If the church were to not be thus limited, all of its funds would quickly be expended helping needy people because there's tremendous poverty in the world, uh, a, a level of poverty that the church is really not even equipped to address. Oh, that's true. And then it wouldn't have any finances to do the more important work, more important work yeah, yeah. Of, of, you know, evangelizing the world. And uh, that's the thing that the world needs more than anything. Do they need their physical uh, uh, physical uh, needs addressed? Well, yeah, they do. And, and we have a responsibility, just as you said, as individuals. But they have a greater need, spiritually speaking, because uh, the Bible tells us that we're just pilgrims and sojourners here. And so we're just passing through this world, and the greatest need that we have is our spiritual needs met through the gospel, and that's really the primary work of uh, the New Testament church. Does uh-huh. it have benevolent needs? Uh, 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 do, do people have benevolent needs? The church uh, has responsibility, as you said, toward needy saints, yes. But, yeah. uh, we'll we're going to talk a little bit more about that as we get further into our study. We're going to stop here for our first break. Stay with us. We'll be back right after this on the Virtual Bible Study. Did you hear what they just said? Call in during this break and let everyone know what you think. The virtual Bible study continues after this announcement. Hi, I'm Jack Coleman, a member of the College View Church of Christ, with a suggestion for you and your family. Why not turn off the TV on Thursday nights and gather the family around the computer for an hour of in-depth Bible study? The virtual Bible study always involves subjects of importance and interest to serious Bible students. So, why not join this Internet Bible study group every Thursday night? Here's some quotes worth pondering. Success is the sum of small efforts repeated day in and day out. If the lessons of history teach us anything, it is that few people learn the lessons that history teaches. The trouble with the rat race is that even if you win, you're still a rat. The definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Man, wish I'd said that. Quit checking your email. The commercials are over and the virtual Bible study is ready to roll. Take it away, guys. And we're back on the virtual Bible study. Thanks for joining us tonight for an important discussion about church, the church and its finances, how they, how the church is to get their money, what they're to do with it, and how. Real quickly, I want to look to some of our emails that we got in. We, we, our first question is, what is the church, local church authorized to do? Uh, Ramona in Texas says the same things we just said, edify the saints, 1 Corinthians 14, 26, relieve needy saints, 1 Timothy 5, 16, spread the gospel, 1 Thessalonians 1, 7, and 8. Chris in the, in the England uh, has written in to say edification, benevolence, evangelism, and we agree. Uh, Jack in Hampshire, Tennessee, uh, sees all three of those works. We won't take time to read all of the all the comments he made, but in Ephesians 4, verse 12, there's the equipping of the saints or perfecting of the saints as the King James. He says this is commonly referred to as edification, and he gives the Greek word there, uh, bringing to a condition of fitness or perfecting. So equipping the saints is edification. This is all in Ephesians 4, 12. The work of service, uh, some versions he says say work of ministry, commonly referred to as benevolence. Uh, it comes from the Greek word diak- diakonia, um, 
which also occurs in 2 Corinthians 9, 1, 11, 8, other passages um, translated to minister or to serve. Uh, so he says that is benevolence. And then also in Ephesians 4, 12, building up the body of Christ, the word build up there is the word that Jesus used in Matthew sixteen eighteen when he promised to build my church. Uh, here it is the sense of to plant or establish where it is not known, to enlarge the borders uh, thereof by bringing others into it, and it is therefore evangelism. So that's interesting. Jack, good good work, Jack. He, he sees all three of those works in Ephesians 4.12, equipping the saints, work of service, building up the body of Christ. That is uh, edification, benevolence, and evangelism. And he goes on to say the church is sufficient to carry out these tasks in any effort by man to add to or improve upon the Lord's arrangement for the accomplishing of his purposes through the church indicates dissatisfaction with God's ways. And I would add a hearty amen to that. And I think that's part of our problem is that some people are just not content to stay with what God has said we should do. So uh, thank you for those responses. Let's go to our second question. I think here we may get into a little more of a maybe some disagreement with some of those uh, who are listening. Uh, and if so, we want to hear from you. Remember, you can uh, email us, questions at collegeview.com. Call us, 877-381-4567. Get in the chat room. I see quite a bit of activity firing up in the chat room, and we may not be able to attend to all of that. We'll we'll let you all uh, dis- discuss it among yourselves, and if we can pick up on some of that conversation, we will. But I ask, what are the authorized means by which a local church may obtain money to finance its work? You know, Jimmy, I see. Even right around here in our own local community, I see car washes, I see pie suppers, I see raffles, uh, 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 garage sales. Um, Jacob, when I was talking to Jacob earlier today about this, uh, he said he's seeing more and more uh, religious organizations having a donation button on their website. Donate here with your charge card any time of the day and night. Go there and you can donate, put in your charge card number and tell them how much money you want to give them. What, do you, what is the authorized means by which the church can obtain its money? Well, the only thing I can read about in the New Testament is uh, free will offerings uh, that's required of us by God. In 1 Corinthians 16, we know in verses 1 and 2, he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, he said, So you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. So he tells each individual, each member of each local church, that they are to lay by in store. They are to give back. We can see in 2 Corinthians 9, he tells us how to give back. He tells us to give as we purpose, so it's a plan giving. He tells us as we have prospered, as God has prospered us. He said, not grudgingly, nor of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And that's the only way and means that I can read of in the New Testament that New Testament Christians gave to carry on the work that God gave the church to do. I think you can read your New Testament from cover to cover, and you will not find any other means by which the church obtained funds. And I tell you what, if we're we're going to do Bible things in Bible ways, if we're going to speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent, and I saw that Jack in the chat room had mentioned that verse earlier, 1 Peter 4.11, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If we're going to do that, then the only only way we can come by our monies is that free will offering of the saints and the day upon which that free will offering is is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 16.1-2 is the first day of the week. Uh, So... um, 
I got to tell you, that's pretty straightforward. And and if we can change that, if we can add to, you know, say, well, I, I understand that, but I, I don't think there'd be anything wrong with us taking up a collection on Wednesday night, or I don't think there'd be anything wrong with us ha- letting the letting the young people have a car wash out in the parking lot to raise funds. I'm telling you, if you can have your parking lot, if you can have your car wash in the parking lot, Jimmy, I can have my pie supper. Dan can have his ice cream social. And we might as well, I mean, we can go into any business enterprise we choose. If we cross that line of authority, then there's no stopping place. Yeah, if you ever get the floodgate open, you cannot get it closed. And there's no stopping what people will do to raise funds and then no stopping what they'll do to spend those funds once they are raised. Yeah. And just as our brother said there in First Peter 4 and verse 11, if we speak, we have to speak as the oracles of God. And I might add to that what John said in Second John 9. He said, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ has not God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. So now, how much transgression does he allow? Uh, he just simply says, if you transgress, then you don't have God. And so that's why it's so so important that we remain within the confines of the Bible, because once we get outside the confines of that Bible and what the Lord has said to us, you know, opinions, my opinion is just as good as yours, yours is just as good as mine, and and so on. And so there's no ending to those things. But if we want to do things, just like you said, and uh, that uh, is uh, that we have authority for, then that's the only thing, the only way and means that we can read of in the Scriptures that they raised funds uh so that the church might carry out its work, the work that God gave it to do, is by free will offering. Thank you. Exactly right. Now, let's go back to that First Corinthians 16. I asked a follow-up question there. I said, uh, "Is there authority in First Corinthians 16:1 and 2 for collections for things other than benevolence?" Now, notice when Paul told them there in First Corinthians 16, he says, "Concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye." On the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him and store as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. This was clearly, Paul was telling them, take up a collection. Actually, Paul was, was, would soon pass through Corinth as he was passing through other regions and other congregations. And the money that they had collected, he was serving as a courier, basically, to carry that money to needy saints in Jerusalem. This is clearly a command about a collection for benevolence. This was for the needy saints. Now, here's the question. That was, And that was the first day of the week, free will offering of the Christians, but it was specified herein as being a collection for needy saints or benevolence. How, how do we then take that same information and take some of that same money collected on the first day of the week and pay the preacher, for instance. Jimmy, you and I are preachers. We get paid out of that first day of the week contribution. Is that right? Can we can we rightfully use 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, for the purposes of doing evangelism or edification? In other words, when we buy Bible classroom material for our students to study, we do it out of that same collection on the first day of the week. Is that right? Well, I think the thing that we have to look at here is this verse tells us when a collection was to be taken. She said it was to be taken on the first day of the week. And it tells us who it is that's to give. That's each one that make up that local church. And then it tells us what is to occur when that collection uh, takes, takes place, and that is to lay something aside 
as he said, that there would be no collections when he would come. So now this is the verse that we see how funds are collected, but this is not a verse that tells us every way that those funds would be used. He tells us one way here, because, or one thing that those funds were to be used for. One thing that those funds that were collected was used for was to provide for the needy saints. Now, as we look at other verses in the Bible and we see that other things that the church spent money for, then we would have to conclude that the money that they had to spend for those particular works that God gave it to do, the the raising of those funds had to be this same way and out of this same same collection. He just gives us one reason, or, or uh, in this particular verse, uh, the reason that these funds were collected was to take care of the needy saints. But if we see another verse where churches spent money, I think it would force us to conclude that it would be out of this collection that they I took on the first day of the week to spend those funds for too. I think and, and so we have to have to look at other verses along exactly, with this. I think you're exactly right. That is that is the pattern by which the church obtains funds to do authorized work. In that passage, the authorized work they were doing was benevolence. We've already shown, though, that the church is authorized to do evangelism and edification. So how is the church going to get money to do edification I, I see, or, or to do evangelism? I see that this is a, quite a bit of the discussion that's in, going on in the chat room right now. But we know, for instance, I was teasing a little bit earlier about as preachers, we, we like to get paid you know, for the work sure. that we do. But that's actually a commanded thing. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 14, the Lord hath ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. So it, the church is authorized to pay the preacher. That is evangelism. How are they going to get that money? Well, the only information we have in the New Testament about how churches obtain money to do any authorized work is by that first day of the week contribution. And so I like the expression you used earlier, Jimmy, that we are forced to that conclusion that this is the way to get money to do authorized work. The authorized work might be benevolence, but it might also be evangelism or edification. If there is authorized work to do, and there is, then that's how the church is to get the, that money. Uh, we're almost up to time for a break. Real quick, let me look at our emailers. Ramona uh, has said, Christians were commanded to give as God had prospered them on the first day of every week when they assembled together, First Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Uh, their giving was to be done eagerly and sacrificially, 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 7, according to what they had, 2 Corinthians 8, 12, and done bountifully in a cheerful, purposeful manner rather than grudgingly or out of necessity, 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7, expecting nothing in return, Luke 6, verse 35. Uh, an individual can have a car wash or a bake sale to obtain money to give to the church, but the church... But can the church do that also? I do not think so. I think she's right about that. You know, I might have a garage sale. And decide that all sure. the money I make from my garage sale, I'm going to contribute on Sunday to the local congregation. I can do that. The church is not authorized to have a garage sale. That's right. My wife and I, she might like to cook pies or something, and she may want to sell those pies, and she may decide after she sells the pies that she want to get, wants to give all that to the to the Lord's uh, church. And so she could do that as far as I could I could see. And But the church couldn't do that. So there, there are limitations. And we can see that in 1 Timothy 5, you remember. There's a d- distinction that's clearly made there between what an individual can do versus what a church can do. Exactly, exactly. That's a whole other part of this broader study. We may not have time to examine that very deeply, but it is important to distinguish between an individual Christian and a collective 
body of Christians working as a local congregation. Uh, Christian UK said the church finances its work from the free will offering of the congregation. We agree. He said there is nothing in 1 Corinthians 16 to indicate that it is for anything but the helping of fellow Christians in Jerusalem, as hinted in at chapter 8 of the following year's letter. That's true. 1 Corinthians 16, we're not arguing that. 1 Corinthians 16 is about benevolence. We agree wholeheartedly. But we are saying you you are forced to take that pattern for obtaining funds because it's the only pattern set forth in the New Testament as to how churches did that. You've you got to take that pattern and apply it to any other authorized work that the church can do. Uh, Jack in Hampshire, Tennessee, has written... Uh, I know of only one method by which a church may obtain money to finance its work, and it's found in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Merchandising, manufacturing, or renting a church building is outside the function and work of the Lord's church. All legitimate business should be kept in the field of individual enterprise. And I think that's exactly right. Um, we're up to time for a break. We're going to grab this um, mid-hour break, and we'll be back after this. Stay with us. we got several more important things we want to talk about before our study is over tonight. Continue with us on the virtual Bible study right after this break. Are you listening? There's going to be a test on this stuff. Stay tuned. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. A nearby bakery shop has a reputation for making some absolutely incredible cinnamon rolls. These rolls are huge and are literally packed with brown sugar, cinnamon, butter. They're topped with a thick, gooey icing. Man, all the good stuff. The very thought of these can make one's mouth water. But alas, the health food craze has surely taken its toll on the cinnamon roll business. And though we love our sweets, we've been warned about all those calories, and we shudder to think about the cholesterol. What's a baker to do when cinnamon rolls are getting such a bad rap these days? The answer, of course, is to offer people an option that appeals to their health-conscious sensitivities. And so, the baker of those delectable cinnamon rolls is now selling an oat bran muffin. Well, everyone's heard about the great benefits of oat bran. It's been touted as the remedy to a whole host of health problems. Surely then, an oat bran muffin is just what the doctor ordered. Never mind that these particular muffins are as big as a catcher's mitt and have more than a fair share of sugar, butter, calories, and even a considerable dose of cholesterol, which simply proves that if we can hide something bad behind a name that sounds good, most folks will swallow it. The same trick is being used by Satan in the spiritual realm. Homosexuality is now an alternate lifestyle and no longer to be called an abomination, as in Leviticus 18, verse 22. Alcoholism sounds better than drunkenness, and it's easier to swallow if we call it a disease rather than a sin. You get the idea. But remember one thing. Calling something bad by a good name does not change the outcome. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. This is Stephen Nicholson, a member of the College View Church of Christ, and I want to invite you to be a regular participant on the virtual Bible study. Your input by way of emails and phone calls are always welcome during the live program. We're also open to your suggestions about possible topics for discussion on upcoming editions of the program. We'd love to hear from you anytime. Missed a recent virtual Bible study program? Listen to any of our past programs from the archive section of our website. Now, back to the virtual Bible study. And we're back on the virtual Bible study. Thanks for joining us tonight, Thursday night, September the 19th, 2013. We're talking about church finances and how the church is to obtain its money, how it's to be spent. A little bit of a side issue, Jimmy, but an important one is the question about a church treasury. I ask, is a local congregation authorized to maintain a treasury? There's some people who say no. You know, they say that. 1 Corinthians 16 was about a, a specific benevolent need. They were instructed to give to that, but there's no authority for the church to hold a fund of money from which it does its various works. 
Um, I actually think that that those who oppose the church holding funds haven't read thoroughly uh, what the early church did. For instance, the very first church in Acts in Jerusalem in Acts chapter four. Uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 34 says, Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. You see that? They contributed it, and from what they had contributed, distribution was made. That is a treasury. Um, also, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, where we've been studying, uh, it says there to lay by in store. That is the idea of a treasury. Yeah, I looked up the word, uh, the, the words that are used in this text, just to see what uh, Thayer and some other ones uh, said about this. To lay means to lay by or to lay aside money is how he defines that. And uh, uh, to lay aside, to gather or to lay up or to heap up or to store up is, is the thought behind that. And you can, I think you can see them using that much like as you said there in Acts the Acts the fourth chapter where they brought that money and laid it at the apostles' feet and then obviously distribution was made as there was need. But but even in in Philippians four we were talking about the supporting of preachers. Uh, Paul, Paul said this as he writes to those at Philippi. He says, "Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel when I departed from Macedonia, no church." shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Now, he was commending the church. Now, that, that was the collective activity of the church. On, obviously mu- was on sending, multiple occasions. Yeah, of sending money to him. So they sent that. And so it would imply, at least it seems to me that, it would imply that they got that funds from uh, a, a treasury, uh, that they had contributed into and sent that uh, aid to him we, once and again, he said. We know that those first century congregations were consistently engaged in works of benevolence and evangelism, which would have required a financial source to do that. Second Corinthians 11, verse 8, Paul said, I robbed other churches, taking wages of them to do you service. So Paul received wages for the work that he was doing. Where did they come from? The church had to have a fund of money from which they could send to him wages. I think that there is justification for a church to hold a treasury um let's see real quick from our emailers uh let's see here ramona says uh, she mentions first corinthians 16 1 through 3 again um chris in the uk says there's no explicit explicit reference to a church keeping a treasury but there are hints that one would be needed in the assistance of widows or the hire of a man like paul uh or the payment of an elder or the preacher also, logistically, a certain amount would be need to be kept on hand to keep the building, uh, which is an authorized expediency for evangelism and edification, to, to purchase hymnals, Bibles, uh, for a microphone, a printer, and so forth. So I think Chris is right about that, and I would agree with him. Um, Jack in Hampshire, Tennessee, says, yes, 1 Corinthians 16, 1-2 provides general authority for the church to maintain a treasury. And first... In verse 2, the saints were to put aside every week and save. Since the saints gathered together every first day of the week, they got the money together in a common fund and avoided the necessity of gathering it up when the time came to send it. Titus appears to have stirred up the Corinthian brethren who had first been, uh, who had first 
who had been the first to make a beginning a year ago, 2 Corinthians 8.10, implying the need for budgeting and as such a treasury. In addition, how would the elders of the local congregation be able to pledge support to a preacher uh, or an elder? Uh, as uh, He gives 1 Corinthians 9.14, 2 Corinthians 11.8, 1 Timothy 5.17, unless there was a treasury from which they could budget and plan. And again, I would agree with that as well. So you know, that, that's a little bit of a side issue, uh, but... Um, uh, we wanted to cover that. Let's let's move quickly to our next question. We're going to run out of time, Jimmy, if we're not careful. Um, the third question I ask is, is there authority for one local congregation to send money to another local congregation? And we've been talking about how the church is to get its money, and we believe that the pattern set forth in the New Testament is for that first day of the week, free will contribution of the saints. Well, here we are, a congregation. Can we get money from another congregation would there be any justification or what we're really looking for is authority for doing that jimmy well the only thing that i can i can read in the scripture of one church sending to another church would be in the area of benevolence that's the only area that i can that i can see uh in acts the 11th chapter we can see that happening there beginning in verses 24 uh verse 27 rather Said in the days, uh, uh, in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelt, uh, dwelling in Judea. This they uh, also did and sent it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And so, uh, Passages like that, and in 2 Corinthians 8, 2 Corinthians 9, we see that same kind of thing happening uh, of where a church could not meet the uh, needs uh, of the, the, the saints of that particular congregation. Here's another congregation sending it, but they sent it directly to the elders so that the elders could make distribution as the saints had need. I think that's exactly right. And that is a pattern that has to be imitated if we're going to be, remain within the bounds of biblical authority. You mentioned Acts 11, verses 27 30, the church at Antioch sent to the churches of Judea because there was a benevolent need there that couldn't be met locally, and so Antioch sent to relieve them. Then in 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and Romans 15, Paul talks about a collection he was taking up from many churches to go to one church, the church in Jerusalem, the needy saints that were in Jerusalem. There was a need in Jerusalem that was so great that they couldn't meet it at the local level. Other churches were doing, were helping by sending them money. Now, now think about this. I think this is really an, an important and necessary distinction. The church at Jerusalem had a unique benevolent need. It was their work. It was their responsibility to see to it that their needy members had their needs met, but they couldn't do it on their own. So, so other churches sent to the Jerusalem church for benevolence. And because the Jerusalem church had a responsibility, it could not meet on its own. But it was exclusively a benevolent need. Now, that's not the same thing in evangelism because no local congregation has a greater responsibility in evangelism than the next one. We all are equally obligated in evangelism. Our responsibility here at College View, your responsibility at the church at Lewisburg, where you're a member, Jimmy, is to do all that you can. You're not obligated to do more than it. It is not your responsibility to take on more work than you're capable of accomplishing with the resources of that local congregation. Same is true here. So in, in a matter of benevolence, we might 
we might fall upon a need so great that we can't meet our need. And then other churches could send money to us to help us accomplish it. They would send it directly to the elders of the local church who would oversee the use of that money. But in benevolence, there's no example of a ch- of one church sending to another church to do a work of, of, of evangelism. And and that distinction has to be made. Yeah, nor edification either. Exactly right. it, it has its... Uh, it, each church can fulfill its own responsibility in evangelism and edification. There may be uh, on... Uh, it, and I guess it would be rare occasions in our country at least... But there, there may be occasions when there would be some benevolent needs that the local church could not provide and take care of, and so other churches obviously could do that and send those funds to do that. And, and that's the only thing that we ever see uh, one church sending funds uh, to another church for is to relieve those needs that it could not supply. It can do its work in evangelism. It can do its work in evangelism. Now, it may not be doing its work, but it can do that work. And uh, God... God gave that local church that responsibility, and it needs to do everything it can to fulfill, fulfill those uh, responsibilities. I think that's exactly right. Again, we want to stress that distinction. There's a difference in pattern between the work of benevolence and the work of evangelism. In benevolence, one church could send to another church where the need was so great that they couldn't fulfill their own need, but not in evangelism. Because, in other words, the church here at College View could not send to the church at Lewisburg, Jimmy, because you don't have a need there that supersedes our need. We all have an equal responsibility and obligation to be spreading the gospel. And so you you, you couldn't say, well, the congregation in Lewisburg has such a great need in evangelism that, that we, we, we just have to have other churches send us money. We're going to talk about that when we get back from this break. The next question we want to talk about uh, is... Um, What's the pattern for a local church to support evangelism in fields other than their own local work? And we want to talk, I called it in, our, in the question, I called it foreign fields, and we'll kind of explain that as we get to it. we got one, one more break and one more segment of the program. Stick with us. It's an important discussion. We're talking about church finances tonight on the Virtual Bible Study. We'll be right back. After these important messages, we'll be back to take your comments. Email them during this break. I'm Trent Haynes, a member of the College View Church of Christ, with a reminder about the update mailing list for the virtual Bible study. Every Thursday, shortly after noon, an email message is sent out with information about the topic for discussion on that evening's program. You're invited to start sending feedback and comments that are then included during the broadcast. If you'd like to be added to our update list, just send a message to questions at collegeview.com and put add me to the list in the subject line. That's all there is to it. We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. Numbers from actual counts of people show that in 2004, 17.7% of the U.S. population attended church services on any given weekend. However, 40% of Americans represent themselves as regular church attendees. Even if a broader definition of church attendance is used, whereby we would classify a regular attendee as someone who shows up at least three out of every eight Sundays, if that's the case, only 25% of Americans would fit this category. If present trends continue, the percentage of the population that attends church in the year 2050 is estimated to be at almost half of the 1990 figure, a drop from 20.4% to 11.7%. That information is via churchleaders.com. The Word of God says in Luke 6, verse 46, Why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? 
Broadcasting around the world with truths that are out of this world. The Virtual Bible Study. Take it away, guys. And we're back for our final 15 minutes of the Virtual Bible Study tonight. Thanks for joining us. We've got a lot of people in the chat room who are talking about several uh, important uh, uh, aspects of this discussion. A little bit of a side. I see in the chat room, I just, I'm just i so busy here with these other things I'm trying to get done that I'm not able to spend too much time watching the chat room, but I see that there's been some talk about what would you do if a member won the lottery and wanted to give some of the winnings to the local church, and some of them are debating that. Kind of interesting question, uh, but we don't have time for that right now. We're going to continue. I want to talk about here before our time runs out, we want to talk about what is the authorized pattern for a local church to support evangelism in a foreign field. Now, I don't think there's any question about the fact that a local church can pay its own local preacher, Jimmy. I, I mean, that's, that, I, I don't believe that's an arguable question, and I don't think anybody even argues that question. I, well, but at, let's say, because you, you and I uh, have known of situations, been involved in situations where we've got a, a brother who's in maybe uh, some foreign country, and the, the, the work there is very challenging and difficult, and there are not many Christians to help support him. And he needs some additional assistance. How how can the church get money to a fellow doing that, Jimmy? Well, we read uh, Philippians 4 just a little bit earlier, and uh, we talked about what was said in verses 15 and 16, where the church at Philippi sent aid once and again to supply Paul's needs as he was uh, traveling about preaching so, and, and, and teaching. And I, so. think, I think he was saying, and, and that specifically, he was not there in Philippi. Right. Uh, they said, he said, you, he Philippians, you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye also, for even in Thessalonica, ye sent once again to my necessity. So mm-hmm. this this was the church in Philippi mm-hmm. sending to Paul while he was in Thessalonica. And it's not and it's not like some do today that they send it to a sponsoring church, one large church, and then that church decides where they who they're going to support, where that money's going to go. No, local churches sent directly to the person that was out in the field preaching and the person that was in need. And so uh, we see that happening, and, and we see that taking place. And, and you made reference uh, earlier in Second Corinthians 11, uh, verses 8 and 9, Paul says, I've robbed other churches to do you service. In other words, other churches sent aid to Paul. They sent uh uh, money to him so that he could preach and, and teach the gospel. And so if we're going to follow the pattern that's given in the New Testament, then that would be the pattern. Uh, when a church saw that a person was out preaching, a person that was in need, he had needs to be met, then they would send funds directly to the preacher so that the preacher could uh, uh, preach and teach teach the gospel. And, and we made mention of this a little bit a little bit ago, and it just kind of came to my mind as we were talking about that. Uh, we was talking about, you know, every church has their own uh, responsibilities in evangelism. They might might have a congregation say, that, well, we don't have a preacher. Well, if a church wanted to help someone in that, they could send aid to a preacher that could move there. If they couldn't supply that, then, you know, uh, just like the church at College View, uh, and let's just say if there was, uh, if I needed support preaching in Lewisburg, then you could send aid to me so that I could move there and work with the church there and help them in fulfilling responsibilities that they had in that sense in, in preaching and teaching. But it would be sent directly to the preacher. Right. So. I, th- I think that's exactly right. So we're seeing a different pattern here. In We, we talked a, a moment ago about benevolence. In benevolence, one church sent to the elders of another church so that that receiving church could fulfill a need that they couldn't meet on their own. 
So you do have an example of a church sending money to another church, but that was in matters of benevolence. In matters of evangelism, it was always a church sending directly to the preacher who was doing the work in, in, in that distant field. Uh, so uh, in evangelism, that's what we're talking about now, the New Testament pattern is always the church sending directly to the preacher. And that needs to be maintained. Now, someone says, well, I don't see why that's such an important distinction. You know, oh, why couldn't I send the money? Why couldn't the church here send the money to the church there and let them pay the preacher? Uh, well, if for no other reason, it's because it's not authorized by New Testament example. Uh, uh, it it is, is simply in the wisdom of God that he saw fit that this would be the most effective way to accomplish the purposes that he wanted we're duty bound to follow the pattern set forth. It's a matter of authority. Yeah, that's the only pattern that we see in in New Testament times is that they sent directly to the preacher that was out in the field preaching and so that supplying his needs so that he could uh, preach and teach. That's what we what we see. We don't have any other pattern but that. And so once again, we get back to First Peter four verses eleven. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And let us be content with that. Why can't we be content with that? Why can't we be satisfied just doing things uh, that uh, God tells us to do in the way that he tells us to to do them? Will that work? Well, yes, it worked during New Testament times. Will it work now? Yes, it'll work now. It'll still accomplish the things that God wants it to accomplish by simply doing the things that he tells us to do in the way that he tells us to do that. And so that's what we have to do. have to do is to simply accept his his will for that. Uh, in, in regards to this question, Jack uh, wrote in. He said, "Churches supported Paul while he labored in the kingdom. Paul took wages from other churches." Second Corinthians eleven eight. In Philippians one verses three through five and chapter four verses ten through eighteen, we read that the church in Philippi was among the churches that supported him. In the example of the Philippian church, we learn how these funds were sent to Paul. They were sent directly to Paul by their individual messenger, Epaphroditus. Chapter two verse twenty five, Philippians. This passage authorizes a direct method of sending funds from a church directly to the evangelist and excludes any other method. There is no biblical example of funds being sent through another church who then would decide which preacher to forward the funds to. Besides not being authorized, this method causes subordination of churches and circumvents the autonomy of local churches. I think that's exactly right, and that is a great segue to the last question. Is a local church authorized to surrender any part of its finances to the oversight of another church, a denominational board, a missionary society, or anything of the sort? Jack says, no, this would be in direct violation of the command that the overseers were given in Acts 20, verse 28, where they were told to shepherd the flock among them. Uh, they could not be considered overseers by surrendering any part of their responsibilities to another set of, of elders from a different congregation. And I think that's right. Um, let's say, and this is what happens. You used the expression earlier, Jimmy, a sponsoring church arrangement. What's happened, and this has happened among our own brethren in churches of Christ, Some typically it's some large congregation, assumes a, a an oversight capacity for a big work. Uh, several years ago, um, there was over a, a church over in Cookville, Tennessee, had a big, a campaign to clean up TV. Uh, one, well, I guess they did. One what, Nation Underground. Well, uh, that was, was a, that was an evangelistic. Okay, they, they did that. That's that's probably even a better example. They had a big evangelistic program. They wanted to get some printed literature in, into every home in America. Obviously, a bigger job than they could fulfill on their own. Uh, 
And so this uh, one nation under God, that's the one I'm thinking of, Jimmy. Uh, they ask local congregations all over the United States to send money to them, and then they would serve as the overseers as to how that money would be spent, where it would go, how it would be distributed, who would be paid, and so forth. So the sending churches were surrendering the oversight of that money to the elders at Cookville, Tennessee. So those elders became overseers of something much larger than their own local congregational work. So there, as Jack said in his email, uh, there is a um, uh, subordination of churches and a circumventing of of local church autonomy. The local churches surrender oversight. The 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 sponsoring church assumes oversight, and it's not biblical. The and here's a question that I've never had really uh, anyone attempt to answer in an affirmative way. If I can, if the local church here can send part of its money to the church in Lewisburg where you're a member, Jimmy, in other words, we're going to send 10% of our contributions to you and let your elders oversee if using that in evangelism. If we can send you 10% of our money, why can't we send you 100% of our money and let you oversee all aspects of the work that we're supposed to be doing? Uh, I mean, I don't see why. If you could, if you could justify one, I think you could justify the other. Now, everybody would just stand up in opposition to that to say, absolutely not, no way. But I'm telling you, if you if you can surrender any part of your funds to the oversight of some other eldership in a different congregation, I believe you could you could theoretically give up all of your funds to the oversight of elders of another congregation. If not, why not? I, I think you're exactly right. I know of a church down in Mississippi that uh, that was the case. There was a larger congregation in the city that actually owned the building. And when the the little smaller congregation met out in the country, then each Sunday all the funds that they collected, they actually sent those funds to the larger church in the city, and they were the ones that were busy overseeing the funds that they sent. Well, to where them. in the world is and, the Bible authority yeah. for that? Yeah, and there was absolutely none. Well, eventually they were taught, and uh, they stopped that practice. Uh, the larger church in the city agreed to sell them the building, but in the end they wouldn't even do that. So they built the building and started following the biblical pattern of doing things like the Lord said do. And now that church is uh, is autonomous and is doing things that like the Lord told it to do and in the way the Lord told it to do. You know, th- th- so, this is what we're describing is a sponsoring mm-hmm. church arrangement. Now, that's mm-hmm. that's common among churches of Christ. We think it's un- unbiblical. We think it's unauthorized. We think that a sponsoring church type of plan certainly violates the, the limited oversight of local elders. It, it violates the concepts of church autonomy. Uh, sometimes, though, I mean, they, uh, groups go even further, and, and they'll even send money to not even churches. They might send money to what we would refer to as a missionary society. Some some board of directors is set up to do it. Let, let's say we want to do evangelism in Africa, and so the African Evangelistic Society is set up with a board of directors. And churches send money to the, to a man-made organization with a board of directors, surrendering their oversight to that board of directors for them then to make decisions about how and where and when the money will go completely without Bible authority. There's just no authority for that whatsoever. So the answer to the question, is a local church authorized to surrender any part of its finances to the oversight of another church? It, the answer to that is absolutely not. Jack says this would be a direct violation of the command 
or overseas. I think I read his already. Uh, Ramona said, uh, um, let me get quickly to her answer, if she answered that one. She said, uh, no, no mention in the Bible of a denominational board or a main church. And uh, Chris in UK says, again, I don't see an example of that. Uh, and I think he's right. So uh, that that's an important concept that really needs to be adhered to in regards to the church and its finances. We're just out of time, Jimmy. I think that's an important topic. As I said at the outset, I think most religious people don't even give that a passing thought. No, I think you're right. And, and it's something certainly that uh, all need to be concerned about because there is a pattern there. And if we want to be pleasing to God, then we have to follow that pattern. We have to do what he tells us. I think exactly right. Thanks for your help tonight, Jim. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. All right, Dan, thanks for running the board. Dan, thanks for all of you who have been listening out there. Uh, We appreciate your participation. We've had a lot of activity in the chat room tonight. Uh, We didn't get to monitor that as closely as usual, but uh, we know it was some beneficial discussion going on there, and we thank for all who are participating. Uh, That wraps up the virtual Bible study for tonight. We ask you to join us again next week, same time, same place. Make it a regular schedule to join us on the virtual Bible study. Read and study your Bible every day. Live by it. You'll never regret it. See you next week, Lord willing. Thanks for listening to the virtual Bible study brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 930 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.